Now crack open the window of history just a bit and consider what happened. Some of you know the story. Cyrus had Babylon completely surrounded. His army on all sides. But the walls of the great city are 350 feet high. 87 feet thick. They could ride six chariots side by side across the top of the wall. There were over 220 guard towers around the walls of Babylon. Over 100 bronzed gates with iron bars. This was an impenetrable city. And furthermore, around that great walled city flowed the mighty Euphrates. When the city was built, the Euphrates was diverted to flow around it and and under it through water channels that would bring water into the people so they could drink and be nourished and water around the city to protect it from the onslaught of people like the Persians and the Medes, led by Cyrus. Babylon's vast storehouses contained so much in the way of food and supplies that the people could live inside the city untouched for 20 years. (laughs) No wonder Belshazzar the acting ruler, was sitting up there having a party that very night. He knew Cyrus was outside. His father, a guy by the name of Nabonidus, was off fighting war somewhere else, so he wasn't involved. But, you know, Dad will show up again at some point, and it's all going to be fine. we got 20 years, and I may be dead by then anyway, so who really cares? Let's party. And by the way, while we party, go to the, go to the treasure house and bring out those vessels of gold from the Jewish temple, let's drink some wine out of those. Let's get drunk out of those things. And they're all up there partying, having a great time, toasting false gods, boasting of invincibility, while Cyrus and his men quietly are outside doing a remarkable thing. While Belshazzar is in there, and if you've read this, Daniel chapter 5 tells the story, he's in there parting it up, and suddenly the handwriting appeared on the wall. Literally. A hand appeared and started writing on the wall. Out of just a hand. God is so cool when he does these things, you know. His hand appears and starts writing and he writes three three or four words. Two three words, the first word twice, and then two more words. Just writes that on the wall, and people are looking at this, and the words are mini, mini, tekel ufarsin. Well, these Babylonian, you know, people are looking at the wall. Going, I don't know what that means. Anybody know what that means? And, and of course, then we're told, Daniel five verse six, the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack, <laughs> and his knees began knocking together. And gang, God loosed the loins of that king exactly as He said He would. So meanwhile, Belshazzar's there and he sends out someone to get him a fresh pair of pants, and they're wondering what to do, right? <laughs> They call on Daniel. Someone said, this old wise man knows what he's doing. He's he's helped out kings before. Bring him in here. They bring Daniel in there. Daniel, they say, can you interpret what's on the wall? And he says, oh yeah. Yeah, that's uh, mene, tekel, ufarsin. Mene means numbered. Tekel means weighed. Ufarsin means divided. Daniel says, God has numbered your days. God has weighed you and found you lacking. And by the way, that's what we're talking about with idolatry. God weighs the heart of an unbeliever, the heart of an idolatrous person, and there's nothing there. He's weighed you, Belshazzar, he's found you lacking, and he now is dividing your kingdom to the Medes and to the Persians who are right outside the city walls. So Belshazzar's there. He hears this and he says, Oh, give Daniel a robe, give him riches, and let's, let's, let's you know, esteem Daniel. Wrong move. You know, he's still not getting it. 
And while Belshazzar is trying to figure out what to do, Cyrus had already enacted his brilliant plan. In the book History, written by the Greek historian Herodotus, we are told that six miles north of Babylon, Cyrus diverted the Euphrates River into a great basin. The basin is called the Sepharvaim. And in this basin, he, he literally diverted the river so that it all started flowing out there and created a great lake. And the water went down, receded, till it was only about a foot deep. Suddenly, all of that water down receded. The channels under the walls that at, at one point were underwater now are above water. And the armies of Cyrus walk right in. They go right under the wall. They are inside the city, flooding into the city before anyone even knew what was going on. And that night, Belshazzar died. That night, Babylon was overthrown and Cyrus fulfilled the prophecy that God said he would fulfill. But even more so, Cyrus immediately decreed that the people of Israel should be able to go back to their land and rebuild it and build their temple. Why? Now remember, Cyrus is an unbeliever. He's not a faithful one of the Lord. Why would he do something like that? In his book, Antiquities, Josephus tells us why. He says, someone brought the prophecy of Isaiah to the attention of Cyrus. Look at this. Look at what this says. Showing it to Cyrus, and Cyrus is so impressed by it, learning that he was named by this Jewish God 150 years earlier, and he was called their liberator. He says, well, I better do it. And so he liberated them. He just followed what the Lord said he would do from the exact prophecy of Isaiah. Amazing. The Bible tells us there's another reason that Cyrus sent the people back and gave this decree. 2 Chronicles 36.22 Ezra chapter 1, verse, first three verses tells us specifically the Lord stirred up Cyrus. The Lord stirred up his heart. Don't think that the Lord does not engage himself in the nations, in the workings of men. As we come up to an election in this next year here, and the choice is, Obama or Romney? There's your choice. That's what we have to vote on. And however you vote, first of all, pray it through. But however you choose to vote or whatever you choose to do in this situation, the great news is simply this. Proverbs 21.1 tells us, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. God's going to accomplish what God's going to accomplish. He's going to do with America, as with every other nation in all history, He's going to do what He chose to do. He's going to see His will through. Babylon's king Nebuchadnezzar ultimately learned this the hard way. Daniel 4.35, Nebuchadnezzar himself wrote, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He's right. The substance is not of man. It says, He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Why? Because the substance belongs to Christ. And any king who gets that, any ruler who understands that, understands that is going to be a better ruler for it. But they're all under the control, the authority of God. Now look back to the words God used to refer to Cyrus, this Persian king. Look back at verse 28 of chapter 44. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Verse 1 of chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. He calls Cyrus my shepherd and Cyrus my anointed. Well, Jesus said in John 10:11, I am the good shepherd. 
the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Peter, in 1 Peter 5, verse 4, calls Jesus the chief shepherd. He's the one. Cyrus is also called God's anointed. The word anointed there is in the Hebrew Mashiach. Jesus is the Mashiach. John 4.25 The woman came to Him and said, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. And when that one comes, He will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. I am Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Cyrus was not only that true character in history, but Cyrus was also a shadow in type prophesied by Isaiah, stirred up by God, a shadow and type of the source, the substance, and the Savior who is Jesus Christ, who is the true anointed Messiah, the true shepherd. Pretty cool. Now verse 8 of chapter 45, going on in response to all of this. Verse 8 tells us, Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up, And salvation bear fruit, and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. May I just point something out here? Salvation always brings righteousness. And I think that's something the church needs to understand. We as believers need to get this down. Where there is the fruit of salvation, there should also be a spring of righteousness. Where saved people are, there should be goodness and truth and faithfulness, and love, and joy, and peace, and patience. There should be a very clear representation of righteousness among saved people. Not what so often we see. Jesus, straightening up, looked at the woman who had been thrown before Him, caught in the act of adultery. And you remember what He said to her? He said, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, I do not condemn you either. Go on back to bed. I'm sure your lover will be there soon. Go from now on, sin no more. You're saved. Stop sinning. Salvation births righteousness. Well, why aren't we perfect? Well, we still have a sin nature. But that doesn't make it okay to keep sinning. You know, Bonhoeffer was huge on this. Some of us were talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer a little bit earlier tonight. I'm reading his book and it's blowing me away. The story of his life. I highly recommend it. Bonhoeffer by Eric Metaxas. An amazing book. Amazing life story. One of Bonhoeffer's main things was talking about cheap grace. He, he looked at Germany at the time, at the time of Hitler. He looked at what the church was doing in Germany. He said, we are trampling all over the grace of God. We are cheapening God's grace. If we understand God's grace, we should be acting in righteousness out of response to the glorious grace that has saved us. But instead we say, hey, I'm saved by grace. Let's go party. I'm going to go get drunk because, hey, I've been saved by grace. I'm going to sleep around because I've been saved by grace. I'm going to shack up and not get married because I've been saved by grace. And it cheapens grace. And where salvation is, there should be righteousness. I I read... I'll just share this with you all. I, I was reading Bonhoeffer and, and there, there was a sense in his life at that time that he felt so alone. Because like a lone prophet crying out to Christians in Germany, wake up, look at what's happening. Stand up for truth. And no one's listening. And I'm reading this going, you know, I know how that feels. I know how it feels to say, 
Here is the standard of the Word. Here's what God, it's not, not my Word, God's Word. Here's what God's Word tells us to do and then to learn the next week. That people who heard that exact thing are doing the exact opposite. It's like, didn't we hear this? And please understand, I don't, I don't ever want to be a legalistic pastor. That is not what we're about at the bridge. We are about the grace of God. But if it's not changing us, we've missed it. Romans 5.20 says, The law came in so transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's what I was talking about before. The substance of God blowing away the cloud of our sin. Our sin can't stand. His grace just abounds where sin is. Wipes it away. He says, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it. And so I'll say to you tonight what I've said before, when we get grace, righteousness and the desire to do the right thing should follow. If it doesn't, we didn't get grace. We somehow misunderstood it. Verse 9. The Lord goes on and says, Woe to the one who quarrels with his Maker. An earthenware vessel among vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, He has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, To what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, The Holy One of Israel and His Maker, Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their host. And again, God is contrasting His self, His great work, His fashioning of all created things, with the pathetic craftsman who makes an idol. He's saying, I did all this. It's absolutely ludicrous to even look at idolatry in comparison to the source and the substance and the Savior of the entire world. But that's what God is driving home. That's His point. Here, by the way, we're still in the court of reason. God is still trying to get His people to reason these things out. In verse 13, speaking of Cyrus again, He says, I have aroused him in righteousness and I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward. Thus says the Lord, the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of, men of stature, will come over to you and will be yours. And they will walk behind you and they will come over in chains and they will bow down to you and they will make supplication to you. Surely God is with you and there is none else, no other God. Now again, remember, the Jewish people didn't have the historical context we have. And so they're listening to this. And they don't know where to put this. Isaiah wouldn't know where to put this. Where do, where do I file this, Lord? You're talking about all these things I don't understand. I mean, put yourself in the sandals of Isaiah just for a moment. You've just written all this out because God told you to. And you go back over and you go, <laughs> I don't get it. Lord, I don't understand. And Moses said in Deuteronomy 29.29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. 
So even though Isaiah can't possibly understand the very prophecy coming out of his mouth regarding Cyrus, Isaiah also doesn't have a single doubt in what God is doing. In fact, what happens, and we see this in the next verse, all of this prophecy brings Isaiah to his knees in glorious worship. He says in verse 15, Truly, you are a God who hides Himself, O God of Israel, Savior. They will be put to shame and even humiliated, all of them. The manufacturers of idols will go away together in humiliation. Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. I love that. You know what this tells us? It means you don't have to understand God or His ways to worship Him. It doesn't have to all make perfect sense. All you need is a little bit of faith. And then you see the vastness of what He does. And you start to step into the relationship with Jesus and it's just huge. Remember what I said about the girth? (laughs) The glory is huge. And so you worship Him without always having understanding. David said in Psalm 139.17, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Paul in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and unfathomable are His ways! The greatest of the prophets and the apostles did not fully understand everything God was doing or was telling them to do. But they didn't have to. All they had to do was trust Him and believe in Him. For thus says the Lord, verse 18, who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. Now, real quickly, this is important. It's important theologically, but it's also very important personally. And I know we've talked about this before. Let me run over this again. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Listen closely. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And if we know Isaiah's word, that should bother us. We should immediately, by the time you get to the second verse of Genesis, if you've read Isaiah 45.18, that should bug you. There's a problem here. Now the Hebrew construction of verse 2 in Genesis chapter 1 is interesting. We read the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Hebrew word was there is hayah, which also translates became. So... The earth became formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Now, just hold that. Keep that in mind for a minute. Formless and void. Formless and void in Genesis 1 verse 2 is the phrase you may have heard before, tohu va bohu in the Hebrew. Tohu va bohu. And it literally means a desolate waste. A vain, empty, messed up thing. So if, if we're reading this correctly, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was or perhaps became formless and void. An empty wasteland, a desolate, messed up thing. Back in Isaiah 45, verse 18, listen again to what he says. He established it. Now let me read the whole verse. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, 
He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. He did not create it a waste place. And guess what? Same Hebrew phrase, tohu va bohu. Genesis 1 verse 1 or verse 2 tells us the earth was formless and void. The earth was tohu va bohu. Isaiah comes along and says God didn't create it that way. So what are we talking about? Why does the Genesis record say the earth was this way? Now, my opinion. We can't say it with absolute certainty, but my opinion, I'll repeat to you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then, verse 2, the earth became formless and void. He didn't create it that way, it became that way. What are you talking about? We talked about this when we studied Isaiah 14. That sometime between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2, somewhere in between those two verses, I believe, personally, Satan rebelled in heaven, was cast down to the earth, and there messed up what God had already created. Then from verse 2 on, what we're really talking about in Genesis chapter 1 is the recreation of the world. In the beginning, God created. And then it got messed up. And that would explain an awful lot. If this is truly the case, it would explain why the created earth became tohu vabohu when God does not create things that way. It would also explain why there was darkness on the face of the deep rather than the light of the glory of God. Why God would have to say, let there be light. It would also explain why the Spirit was brooding over the surface of the waters. The implication there is the Spirit of God is not happy about what's going on. Brooding is a a serious thing. And he's above the surface of the waters just going, this is not, this is not what I intend. It would explain why Satan was in the Garden of Eden to deceive Eve and to tempt Adam. All of that is explained. Now it's an interesting theology, but the point is to be taken personally. And that is this. And I say this to my kids all the time. Please, everybody hear this. God does not create waste. His fullness does not make for emptiness. What He does do is He takes wasted, messed up, empty things and He beautifully restores them to what they were supposed to be in the first place. So if you feel messed up and wasted in your life, God didn't start you out that way and it is not His intention to leave you that way. He would restore you. If parents, if you have kids who have made stupid messes of their lives, God did not intend that. He did not create them that way and it is His intention that they be restored. You keep praying. You don't give up. And you keep waiting on the Lord and asking Him to bring the breakthrough that needs to happen in your son or your daughter's life. God is the great reformer. Not Luther. <laughs> God is the reformer. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. God creates. Satan messes up. God restores. That's how it works. Verse 19. I have not spoken in secret. In some dark land, I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place, literally seek me in tohu vabohu. 
I didn't say seek me in a place that is vain and empty and meaningless. No, I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come, he says. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. Why is he sworn by himself? Because the Hebrew writer says there's nothing greater to swear by. So I've just sworn by myself, my substance, my weight, my glory. That I will swear by because it's consistent and solid and true. I've sworn by myself, my word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. You Bible students know that verse, Philippians 2.10. Paul grabs hold of that and he says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's where he got it. And God says, to me, every tongue will swear allegiance. I like that. He goes on in verse 24 saying, They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to Him. And all who were angry at Him will be put to shame. Hang on a second. That's God speaking. So the Him... It's someone God is now referring to. They will say of me only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. And then will come to Him. Who is Him? Jesus. It's Jesus. They will come to Him and those who are angry at Him will be put to shame. And in the Lord, listen to this, in the Lord all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. And that tripped me up for years as a Bible student. All of Israel All of Israel, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. All the offspring of Israel? What does that mean? Turn to Romans 9 and we'll finish there tonight. Romans chapter 9. I was going to do chapter 46. We have to say that. Romans chapter 9. Now, I easily could just read Romans 9, 10, and 11. We'll just pick out a couple of verses out of 9 here tonight. Starting in verse 6, listen. Paul is writing. He's writing about Israel. In fact, back in verse 1, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why, Paul? For my people. Paul was a Jew. For the people of Israel, my heart is broken, he says. Verse 6, he says, But... It is not as though the Word of God has failed. Okay, the end of Isaiah 45, the offspring of Israel, all the offspring of Israel, it's going to be saved. And Paul says, now, don't miss this. It is not as though the Word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are from Israel. Nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. And you might underline that right there. Islam does not count. Because Islam draws back to Ishmael. 
And God made it absolutely clear that from Abraham through Isaac through Jacob would come salvation. Not through the other way. In fact, so serious was God about this that when Ishmael was already a a man, He said to Abraham, I want you to take your son, Genesis 22, take your son, your only son, Isaac, and go up on the mountain that I have shown you. But what about his son Ishmael? God says, Isaac is the only son. He blessed Ishmael. He took care of Ishmael anyway. God even loved Ishmael. But the promise was through Isaac. And that's what Paul is pointing out here. The promise is through Isaac. Verse 8, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. What promise? What promise is that? Listen, Genesis 12.3, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But then extending that, Genesis 21, verse 12, he says again, through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. And so we understand the line had to go Abraham through Isaac, again to Jacob who bore Judah, and down that line of Judah comes the Christ Messiah. And now we start to get down to it. Skip down to verse 22 of Romans chapter 9. And Paul explains all of this. He says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if He did this? (laughs) And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom He also called, now listen, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. At the end of chapter 45, let me read the verse one more time. He ends up saying, In the Lord all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Here is all the offspring of Israel. It includes the faithful of Israel before Jesus came. Everyone from creation to Jesus who had faith in God, who trusted and believed God for His Word, will be saved by the blood of Christ, which goes backward as well as forward, and cleanses all those who lived before Him, but lived in faith. So, this all offspring of Israel, this would include all those who believed and followed the Lord, just as Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, It also includes the early church, which was Jewish. In fact, it was all Jewish until the word began to get kicked out and spread out of Jerusalem following a great persecution. And suddenly, Peter is sent to Cornelius and Paul is sent to the Gentiles and suddenly they start to realize this is bigger than we even thought it was. So the faithful of Israel, the early church, all Gentiles across the last 2,000 years who believe in Jesus are part of the offspring of Israel. That is so cool. That is you and me tonight. You are the offspring of faith. And the promise of Isaiah 45 is to you and to me. But it's also to Jews across the last 2,000 years who have believed in Yeshua HaMashiach as their Messiah. Sometimes they're called Messianic Jews. The reality is they're just the church. Anyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ is part of His church. will be raptured when the church is raptured. It's part of that promise. Jew or Gentile alike. In fact, what did Paul say is, 
Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor uh, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus, right? So Jew and Gentile alike, saved, if you come to faith. This also includes, I believe, tribulation saints. Those who will come to faith in Jesus Christ during that, that seven-year tribulation. They're going to miss the boat, but they'll catch the charter. Okay? And we had a guy on the Alaska cruise who was hilarious. A guy named Jim Maltman. Physical comedian. You know, he balanced ladders on his chin. And he's just, the guy was really funny. In fact, you can see him if you see the Jim Carrey Christmas movie, the, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Jim Maltman is the who on the bicycle at the beginning. Okay, riding around on the huge bicycle. Anyway, but this guy had to catch seven flights to meet up with our ship to do his gig. He, he did three different shows, and we saw all of them and just cracked up. And I don't know why I thought of that. Oh, yeah, he missed the boat, but he got the charter. Okay, so he got there. <laughs> Finally, last of all, fulfilling every promise ever given, God is going to save the remnant of Israel, that third of Israel that he brings through the fires of tribulation. And that's all the offspring of Israel. And His promise goes out. God is the source, God is the substance, and God is the Savior. Amen? Amen. So let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that we don't pray to an empty, flimsy God. We don't pray to an ethereal ghost. We don't pray to one who is less substantive, but far more than we can even imagine. And we praise You and we glorify Your name because You are glory incarnate. Because You alone, Father, have all power and all all value and all worth. We praise You because of Your substance. We praise You because You are the source of life and You are the very source of salvation. Father, we praise You because You are our Savior in Jesus Christ. Amen.